Welcome back. My name is Adam Armstrong. I'm from the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change, and you're on The Pulse. Last week, we spoke about Ularato Pile and the Put South Africa First campaign. This week, we're going to talk about how Jean got into this work and a little bit about the Guptabots. So Jean, maybe tell us about your role and what you do. Um, well, at the moment, I'm based with the Digital Forensic Research Lab. I'm a research associate um, based in Cape Town. And what we do in a nutshell is identify, analyze, and explain disinformation. But we do this using open source investigation techniques. So we look at things available on social media. We look at things available on you know, everything from public phone registries to apps that you might use to track individuals, um, Google Maps if we need to. We're going to use all of this to look at disinformation campaigns. We try and figure out who's behind them, and then we publish findings uh, either identifying them or explaining why what they're doing is is a bit of a problem. Um, before that, uh, I've got a history of doing forensic investigation work. Um, I studied law at Tux all the way back in 2008. Um, qualified as a lawyer, went through the whole motion, getting my articles, and shortly after that joined the public protector doing corruption investigation work uh, for their offices. Um, after that, I was with the Financial Services Board for a while, uh, doing uh, forensic investigations in the pensions and surveillance department. And then after that, um, I actually worked for News24 for a while as an investigative journalist, kind of applying some of these techniques and stuff that I learned. And it was while I was working for the FSB that I actually got involved in my first taste of open source investigations, and that was strangely enough, with the GuptaBots. So that's quite a journey you've been on. How did you end up finding GuptaBots while you were at the FSB? Um, at that stage, I was in Port Elizabeth doing an investigation into uh, one of the pension funds there. And what was, um, I mean, it's, it's called the Windy City because it blows. So <laughs> I was sitting at my hotel room that evening, not much to do. So I started scrolling through my phone, uh, eventually came across my Twitter account, which wasn't that active at that stage. And I actually came across a tweet from uh, Stefan's Brunners, where he was actually being, not exactly attacked, but he was kind of being berated by an individual saying, well, you know, Amma Bungani publishes nonsense. This is just, you know, statcom propaganda. But what was interesting about this tweet was is that it had about 35 retweets which for an anonymous individual with no you know, political affiliation, he was basically an unknown person on, on social media. To get that amount of engagement was, was quite strange. So I looked into the account, I saw the accounts that were retweeting it, and I immediately noticed that even though some of the names were Afrikaans, they were spelt incorrectly. And that got me digging a bit deeper. So I looked at the individual accounts themselves. And the first thing I saw was that all of these accounts had retweeted the same tweets in the same order. So if you look at five or six of these 35 accounts, you'd see that all of them had retweeted a number of tweets from different individuals, but in the same order. And that was exceptionally strange. Um, when I got home after the investigation, I then actually went on a Googling spree trying to figure out how you can identify and link up and kind of show that there's this 
coordination going on, which at that stage in November 2016 um, wasn't that common a phenomenon. So you were looking into what was an orchestrated campaign before you realized what it was? I mean, I had no background. I had no experience in that kind of thing. I've, I used social media. And I'd done kind of debunks before that, and I'm used to investigating things. But, um, I mean, that was obviously something totally new. It wasn't something um, we as South Africans had heard of. In fact, this was before the um, Russian bedding in the U.S. election um, started coming out as well. So there wasn't even that frame of reference to, to work with. And it was one of the things that made it quite challenging to figure out how to portray what I'm seeing in a way that makes forensically sense, in a way that I could say, here is some data that backs up what I'm seeing anecdotally. And what did you find there? Can you maybe talk us through a bit of that investigation? Yeah, there was uh, the main investigation took about took place about a week after that. Um, uh, another journalist, uh, I think it was Charles de Villiers and Bali van Beek, actually pointed out to me that there were very, lots of suspicious accounts on one of Mzwanele Manyi's tweets. Um, now, back then, Mzwanele Manyi was still quite involved with the Guptas. He, if you recall, he eventually bought uh, the media group that contained ANN7 and the New Age. And lo- lots of these accounts were busy retweeting him. And when I looked at the accounts they were referring to, I actually recognized quite a few of them from that first little foray that I had a week before. And this was on a Thursday, and I remember I still thought to myself, okay, I need to figure out something. I need to find a way now to to do it. And I literally ended up Googling, how do you do Twitter analytics? I think that was the exact phrase that I used. And obviously, there were you know, hordes of tools that you could use, all of them paid for. And I, mean, I was on a strict budget, so there was no way that I was going to spend thousands of rands to maybe find something. And what I ended up finding was a tool called the Twitter Analytics Google Sheet, which is basically a Google spreadsheet that uses the Twitter API to pull in tweets and then gives you a breakdown of what they are saying, what the conversation is about, keywords. um, And most tellingly for me, it also has the uh, capability to map those tweets along the timeline. So using that and then manually going through these retweets and building up a list of accounts, I've found about 106 of these Twitter accounts that were tweeting in unison. I managed to bracket them up into four different groups um, just by going along their their timelines. So what I found there was there was a specific account that was kind of in charge. So there was a leader account and that account would tweet something and then in each of these clusters, about 20 other accounts in each cluster would then retweet that um, specific tweet. And the way that I differentiated the leaders in each cluster from the kind of the zombies in the cluster was by looking at the leaders, and the leaders always tweeted something more. They always were engaging. They were replying. They were doing more than just retweeting, whereas the zombie accounts were just retweeting in mass. And that was quite... When I, I still recall when I got that first uh, spreadsheet populated and it showed the graph, you know, showing all of these timelines going up and down in unison. I mean, it's, it's something to behold if you see 20 accounts tweeting at the exact same time. And what the Twitter API also allowed me to do was to actually see 
the exact second that these tweets and retweets were made. And what that showed was is that they were even being retweeted at the exact same second. It wasn't a case that it's various persons going through the motions and retweeting things. They were actually retweeting at the exact same second. Um, I did a bit of further digging and just trying to figure out how they were doing it. And um, again, the Twitter API was a saving grace there because it showed that they were using TweetDeck to do that. And what TweetDeck allows you to do is link up, I think it's up to 30 accounts that you can link on a single TweetDeck dashboard. And whenever you click retweet or whenever you like a tweet, TweetDeck allowed accounts to um, all of the linked accounts to retweet and like that same account as well. And that was basically what was happening here. They had a few of these accounts that were in charge, and they were whenever they would retweet or when they would like a tweet, their entire zombie following of 20 or 30 accounts would retweet and like the same thing. So, I mean, you've really been one of the kind of pioneers in South Africa in, in exploring digital forensics and these kind of coordinated campaigns. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of people doing it. Um, I think if I can count to mind, there's probably about, uh, about five people that are exceptional at this. I'm by no means the only one. Um, there are a few people that are not actively involved in the media space that are also doing their own investigations along the side. And we coordinate and uh, you know, discuss things uh, together. It's actually uh, quite strange. The, the three of us got together um, because of the Gupta bots. So there's two other individuals um, that are also, are, you know, also did quite a lot of research in the Gupta bots and the way they operated. And all three of us were looking at them and looking at their behavior in our own ways at different times. And when I published that thread on Twitter way back in November 2016, the kind of attention that they generated brought the three of us together. And we've since then been, uh, you know, frequently coordinating and, you know, looking at campaigns that we pick up and identify. And it's actually strange to see how much we've grown um, since, what's about four years ago, just looking at the disinformation space and the way that it's grown as well. Yeah, it has changed a lot. And so at the CABC, we're one of the kind of the newer players in this space and still and, and learning as we go. And it seems to evolve very quickly. What do you think's changed the most since 2016? Um, I think people are more aware of, of the fact that there are orchestrated campaigns. Uh, I mean, these days, it's not uncommon to see somebody calling someone out as a bot online. I think that's probably one of the unfortunate consequences of the of the Gupta bots is that people resort to calling somebody a bot very quickly. It's a bit unfortunate because from a technical perspective, there are differences between bots and sock puppets. And in the Gupta bots case, they were actually sock puppets and not bots. Uh, I think the Gupta sock puppets isn't as catchy though. So uh, the Gupta bots is the phrase that actually caught on. Um, what what it did do, though, is it did engender that idea that social media is vulnerable to being manipulated and, and changed. Um, unfortunately, at the same time, it did give the bad actors the very same ideas uh, as well. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So we're seeing more of these kind of campaigns. They've adapted to the new ways. They've learned how to manipulate algorithms. They've learned how to, you know, use things like deep fakes and GAN generated images to make more believable sock puppets. They're shying away from using automated tools, which makes them easy to detect. So as they 
kind of learn, we've had to learn to keep up and try and keep pace. And it's this almost this digital arms race between the disinformation researchers and the disinformers that they're trying to, to catch out. Could you maybe explain to listeners the difference between a bot and a sock puppet? Well, in, in essence, a bot is an automated account that um, you can instruct to do certain things. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, for example, there is uh, in Cape Town, there's a bot that 12 o'clock each day, it just tweets out boom. And this account is called the, I think it's called the Cape Town Cannon. Because in Cape Town, there is a cannon that goes off every day at 12 o'clock. So and that's an example of a bot that when it's 12 o'clock, it just automatically tweets out boom. Similarly, there are accounts that would say, if you use the word literally, it would actually correct you and say, well, actually, you meant figuratively. So there's, there's lots of these accounts. Some are humorous. Some of them are actually useful. Um, if you take, for example, there's a thread, that thread reader app that people use on Twitter to kind of build threads into a single document. That's another example of, of an automated bot. A sock puppet, on the other hand, is an account that's deceptively trying to be something it's not. So as an example of that would be the Gupta bots where they were pretending to be South African citizens. They were pretending to be a Ranir Pretorius and a Dintle Skuman and all of these South African, but not exactly fitting names. And even though they were in fact sitting in uh, India, and they were busy tweeting as South Africans from India and you know, amplifying disinformation sites that were critical of opponents of the Guptas and that were trying to get their reputations back into order. And that's, that's in essence a sock puppet. It's any account that's pretending to be uh, something it's not. So I just want to check I've got this correct. You had... You found accounts with South African-sounding names that were people in India who were tweeting pro-Gupta information. That, that's it, yes. Um, we managed to find out they were sitting in India um, through actually a comedy of errors. Um, the first clue was the names that they used. So uh, quite a few of them we had used names like Zintles, Skuman, and Bongi Forster. These are South African names and surnames. But because of our you know, colonial history, we've got English and European surnames and we've got African names and surnames. And although it's, it's, it's uncommon, you do find them that they, that you, you know, you just find a mix of the two. Uh, what's uncommon is finding 35 people with such mixed uh, you know, Afrikaans and, uh, you know, a, a Zulu name and an Afrikaans surname or an Afrikaans name and a, uh, 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 cause our surname mixed together in these kind of numbers. And the impression that we got from that was that somebody was given a spreadsheet of South African names and surnames and just mixed them up because that's the kind of result you would get if you, if you just did that. Um, some of the other clues we found was in the tweets that they actually sent out. So there was, uh, for example, screenshots that they would post of articles to say, oh, well, look here, this is proof that Rupert did one, two, and three. And when you look closely at the screenshot, you'd see adverts on the side of the pages, which were Google ads. Now, Google ads are localized. So if you're sitting in South Africa, you won't see, for example, a U.S. company advertising goods. And what we saw from those Google ads was that they were advertising a, an Indian insurance company. And the specials were marked in Lux, which is a 
Indian currency denomination. Um, similarly, there were cases where, for example, uh, Airtel in India went down, the service provider. And we actually saw a drop in traffic from these lists of GuptaBot accounts that we've identified. Um, for as long as Airtel's service was down, and once it was restored, all the GuptaBots magically came back as well. Um, I think there was also one particular instance where some of the GuptaBots ended up retweeting Google India, um, which was that was quite telling. There was also a case where they took, um, I mean, in similar in a way that we see today, where people try to get onto popular hashtags and use the popularity of a hashtag to amplify the, the message. Um, a few of them used hashtags that were localized in Delhi, for example. Uh, there was an air pollution campaign that was running in Delhi at the moment, and when they copied and pasted the hashtags to use as South Africans, what ended up using of what ended up happening is that they included the localized Delhi hashtags as well. That was uh, for this air pollution campaign in Delhi, and all of these things were little markers indicating that they were in fact uh, based in India, not in South Africa. And so, when you say they, it sounds like it was a group of people. Oh, there was definitely more than one individual involved, um, considering that we identified clusters of accounts and then these clusters each kept to their own kind of schedules and times. Um, what was very interesting is that they kept working hours. So, you, for example, you'd never you know, get any engagement from them over the weekends, for example. So your Gupta bot fighting duties kind of stopped on a Friday afternoon and then resumed on the Monday again. And um, even when we started plotting the tweet times for these accounts, you could see there's, there's a very clear period in which they tweet. Then they take their uh, half-hour lunch, and then they start again after that, day in, day out, but never over weekends. So, But at the same time, you could see there were slight differences. So there would be differences in volumes. And the impression was that there are a handful of people running these accounts, um, most likely based in India, although there were quite a, a few handful of them that we localized to, to South Africa for various reasons. So is this, this sounds to me like a call center where instead of phoning to try and sell you insurance, they're tweeting online. That, that, I think that would be a good, good analogy to use for this. You've got a handful of people with very little local knowledge, but they're given a set of keywords, for example, to, to look up. And every time somebody mentions one of those keywords, they have got instructions to either retweet that or to you know, try and vilify the, the individual. And then what they would end up doing is as they started attacking a specific individual, others would jump onto the bandwagon. Um, they had a penchant for racializing a lot of the issues. And as people kind of jumped on, they would then amplify and retweet the other people joining in on this conversation. So they kind of just, on the one hand, they were stoking the kind of the animosity between, between individuals and at the same time amplifying, you know, the people on the one side of the engagement. So you, you find this call center of Indian people who are engaging in, in a politicized, racialized conversation about corruption in South Africa. And... I guess the one, the one question I have is, is, is any of that illegal? And then the other question is, what do you do about this once you find it all? Well, I don't think there's anything illegal necessarily in what they did. Um, it might have been against Twitter's um, terms of service. I think that's why quite a large number of the accounts were eventually suspended um, by Twitter. There are some of them that are still alive and 
you know, you can still find them online. Um, I've actually gone back to a few of them to kind of see, you know, some of the telltale signs were, were still there. And, um, but whether that was illegal or not, I don't think there was anything that they did that was necessarily illegal, although it was deceptive. Um, what they ended up doing, though, is they were amplifying content that was, you know, you know breaching the confines of the law. Um, examples of that would be the WMC Leaks website, which was a website built up as a portal for disinformation. So they would put up articles that was, um, you know, defamatory of specific journalists. Um, one of the first examples of that that I looked at was Peter Bruce, um, who was, there were these allegations that he was um, you know, having an affair and that he was cheating on his wife. And they had this full spread on the WMC Leaks website that was, you know, proclaiming that this is what he's doing. Um, ironically, that was attached, uh, a PDF was attached to that as a part of the dossier. And the metadata of that PDF showed that it was created in a time zone that's uh, 4.30. South Africa's GMT plus two. And this time zone that the PDF was created in was GMT plus 4.30. And there's only one country in the world that uses 4.30 as its time zone, and that's India. So even in doing that, they ended up slipping up and giving themselves away. Um, there's also quite a lot of examples where they would take um, pictures, especially of you know female individuals, uh, Tugin Sela and Ferial Hafiji springs to mind, um, where they would take these images of them and place them in very sexualized positions and you know, extremely uh, defamatory um, in its nature, and then use that to try and discredit the journalist or the um, individual because they were critical of the Guptas. So I, I wanted to ask if we if we step back from this, so you mentioned WMC Leaks and you mentioned Tuli Maranzella and Ferial Hafiji. For people who know nothing about any of this and about the Gupta bots, what, what was this all about? Well, the, uh, Tuli Maranzella was the former public protector. She's my old boss. And she was involved in an investigation that started... Um, scratching open the the entire state capture. I mean, the the report that she was working on way back then eventually led to the state capture commission that we we're seeing now. And because of that, and because of her, you know, dogged determination in exposing the truth and looking at individuals linked with the Guptas, um, she was kind of targeted. She was. Um, painted as this individual that's beholden to white monopoly capital, which was the big scapegoat uh, the, the Gupta bots used. Um, Feral Hafiji, in the role as a journalist, was targeted because she reported critically on, on the Gupta family. Um, in a similar way, a lot of the, the other journalists that were uh, reporting on the Guptas were brigaded in a similar way. Um, I think I recall Barry Bateman was one of the individuals targeted by the Gupta bots. Uh, Polly from Vake was targeted in a similar manner. There's uh, a long list of these journalists that were, you know, attacked simply because they were reporting negatively about the the Guptas. So you mentioned white monopoly capital. What what is that? Can you explain that? Um, the white monopoly capital. What well, that was the word or the phrase that they coined as the um, that's kind of the red herring that they they planned on using. And what that basically entails is being South Africa is a massively unequal country. We've got um, a very small you know, section of the population sitting with the vast majority of the of the uh, the wealth. And all of that is due to the legacy of apartheid and the 
uh, kind of the, as well on top of that, the failures of the government to make do on a, on its promises of a better life for all. And what's happened in this case with the, the Gupta bots is they use the term white monopoly capital to blame social ills and the fact that you know there are no jobs for black South Africans on white monopoly capital. And this was a very vague term that they used that encompassed everything from you know Johan Rupert and the, the Stellenbosch mafia, as they referred to them. Um, it encompassed anybody that was basically critical of the Guptas. Because the counter-narrative that the Gupta family was running on their own media was that they were the panacea to white monopoly capital. They were these family, they came from India, they worked their way up. Um, they're black business people and they are now being targeted and blamed for corruption because they are taking the fight to white monopoly capital. So it's kind of this two-pronged um, campaign that they were running. On the one hand, they, they built up the white monopoly capital boogeyman. And at the same time, they, on a positive side, the Guptas were presenting themselves as the answer to the white monopoly capital that's now trying to strangle black business in, in SA. The unfortunate detriment of this was that the very real and the very needed conversation around um, the fact that there, a lot of the um, material wealth in South Africa is vested in you know, white people's hands. That conversation got lost in, in the noise. Um, even though the WMC and the white monopoly capital theme still surfaces every now and then, when it does, the immediate connotation is with the Gupta bots and the Gupta campaign. So the chance to have a conversation around that and to discuss that as a point of discussion, that's unfortunately lost because it's the term white monopoly capital was co-opted by the Guptas in this way. This reminds me a lot of the conversation we had last week where we spoke about put South Africans first and how in that instance, uh, unemployment and crime and poverty are blamed on foreigners. And that's in 2020. And what you're talking about now is in 2016, how white monopoly capital was being blamed again for the high levels of unemployment in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's very clear parallels between the two. Um, I mean, both of the campaigns have got a boogeyman that they built up. So in the case of the Gupta bots, they use the white monopoly capital as their scapegoat. I mean, the uh, xenophobic campaign, they're using foreign nationals as their scapegoat to blame. And then at the same time, they present a solution. So on the one hand, you're creating or you are building up this boogeyman that's a problem. And at the same time, you're presenting someone or something as the solution. In the case of the Gupta bots, you had white monopoly capital on the one hand and the Gupta, you know, the Gupta businesses as the panacea on the other hand. And then looking now at the xenophobic campaign, you've got foreign nationals being blamed as the cause of crime, unemployment and the lack of service delivery. And then you've got these political parties sticking up their hands and saying, well, we are the solution. So it's a case that you've got, you know, these campaigns building a proper problem, propping that up, and then at the same time presenting a solution um, that's obviously benefiting only only very very specific number of individuals. What strikes me listening to you is is the relationship between these Twitter narratives and and the stories that get told on Twitter, and then the real world corruption or the real world violence that's happening. How do you understand that? That there's some people have said to me, "Oh, it's just Twitter; it doesn't matter." But listening to you, it sounds like 
it actually really does matter. No, the, the, the problem with, with that, I mean, we've also heard it a lot. People say that, well, it's social media. Um, I mean, I think the Twitter penetration rate in South Africa is something like 9 million people, which is, uh, it's not that much if you compare it with the entire population, which is likely closer to 70 million at the moment. The problem is that social media narratives, even though it's a very small part of the population, um, runs the risk of being injected into the traditional media. Um, we saw that specifically at the DFR lab earlier this year, where a um, letter sent by the African transformation movement to uh, President Ramaphosa, citing this strange conspiracy involving Bill Gates and Trevor Noah and Nadal and an exhibition tennis match held in January this year with a planned COVID vaccine. It's a extremely convoluted conspiracy that they were pushing. But this letter was sent to Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, it was widely circulated on social media by the leaders of the ATM. And what happened after that was is that the traditional media organizations took a hold of that and just reported uncritically on it. So they took the narrative that was being circulated on Twitter and then reported on it without being critical of the content. And that's kind of the risk the, the eventual amplification of that conspiracy was vested with, you know, the SABC and um, I think The Citizen was one of the other publications that gave it a lot of reach because they just took what was being said and reported on it. They didn't question what was being said. And that same amplification and injection of the narratives into the traditional media can happen with any, any topic on, on Twitter. Um, I've actually seen it in action where there'd be posts on some of the WhatsApp groups that I follow. That post would then be taken into, into WhatsApp. Uh, from the WhatsApp group, it would be posted onto Twitter. Somebody on Twitter would you know, start retweeting it, it would get amplified. Uh, one of these junk news sites then sees what's happening on Twitter, does a small piece on, oh, you won't believe what this guy on Twitter said, and then that thing gets used back in the WhatsApp group to say, oh, well, look here, somebody's published something on this. It must have been true. So it kind of becomes this self-feeding, almost like a feedback loop where the disinformation is created and amplified and it eventually circles all the way back to be injected back into the group again. So I'm, just, I'm thinking about how you started out studying law, um, and, and here you are talking about feedback loops and real, real news websites running fake news that was shared on WhatsApp groups and cryptopods. What do you do now? What is, a, what, is a day in, what is a day in your regular work life look like? Well, I think now with the pandemic, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't think I can even call it a regular day anymore. But um, I mean, with the working from home, it kind of blurs the lines between when you start working and when you stop but um, generally, I mean, we try and keep an ear on the ground. So I'm constantly going through Twitter, seeing if there's any hashtags cropping up. Um, I've always got an ear out for leads from people in the public seeing something that I might not necessarily see. It's um, one of the kind of side effects that I found from my previous work is that I've been blocked by quite a lot of people. And as a result, I'm not seeing a lot of the kind of the conversations and the disinformation narratives going around. So I've actually had to set up a second account that's just lying there listening that I could use to do unfettered searches on, you know, specific narratives and, and hashtags. 
And then from there, it's just a case of making sure if something does prop up to do a bit of background research to see if there's something more to it, is it something organic? Is there indicators that this campaign might be a bit more um, suspicious? And if there is something to do it, then draw up a quick pitch, setting out some of the findings, the suspicions and the, the kind of the possible conclusions you've got, and then pitching that to our team in the U.S., to check if they've got appetite and if that falls within our, our kind of scope. Uh, once that gets approved, then you can actually start doing the thorough research, digging into the account. Um, and I mean, that that's usually where the most of our time goes into, is just sitting behind the PC, looking at the screen, clicking on links, trying to dig ever deeper into who's running the accounts. So it's um, it's quite a, it's never the same kind of investigation uh, two times in a row. It's probably one of the reasons why I like it that much is it's it's always changing. There's always something new to discover. And then depending on the investigation, you always have to use different techniques and different tools. Um, doing a Twitter investigation, for example, is totally different from, say, if we get a takedown notification from Facebook, which uh, would involve them taking down a number of Facebook pages and Facebook groups because they were acting um, you know, in an inauthentic and coordinated way. And we use different tools to assess that and look at how they interacted uh, compared to, for example, a fake news website. So we were talking about white monopoly capital and the cryptos and the crypto bots, and you found this bizarre, amazing story of essentially a call center in India running fake news and a, and a disinformation campaign. Um, and that seems to have all kind of, in some way, been vindicated through the Zondo Commission. Looking at all of that and looking at where we are now in 2020 with Zondo Commission and with some arrests happening this week, how do you understand all of that? I mean, there's uh, the, the Gupta bots themselves. I think we did, we canvassed it a bit earlier. What they did wasn't necessarily um, illegal. So I, I wouldn't expect you know somebody to stand up at the Zondo Commission and say, well, the, the Gupta bots were orchestrated and we were conducting that and so on. But what it does do is it runs a parallel to something like the Zondo Commission. Um, even now, you will find, sometimes find, especially when specific individuals are testifying or when there's a specific SOE that's involved, you'll find accounts trying to change the narrative or to steer the conversation in a certain direction. I think that's the probably the biggest kind of takeaway from the Gupta bots and going forward is the way that um, I mean, we as a society, as we use and as we consume social media, to be exceptionally critical of what we're being told. If there's an anonymous account that's telling you that foreign nationals are to blame for one, two, and three, to you know, be suspicious of that. Don't be, you know, gullible and accept it on its word. Question why this account is doing it. What's what's at play here? Why are they saying what they're doing? And especially now with the Zondo Commission, I definitely expect there to be. Um, you know, campaigns around some of the findings and the things that come out of the Zonda Commission going forward. It's something um, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out on. Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting talking about CryptoBots and White Monopoly Capital. And we will pick up this conversation next week where we'll be talking about the DFRL and the work you do and why it matters to South Africa. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Thank you again to Jean LaRue, Research Associate from the Digital Forensic Research Lab, who's talking to us today about Gupta Bots, White Monopoly Capital, and South African Democracy.
Join us again next week for the last in our three-part series where we'll be talking about the work of the Digital Forensic Research Lab and myths and disinformation in South Africa.